Welcome to the Dr. Dad's Podcast, where a naturopath and chiropractor come together each week to share lifestyle medicine, health advice, and inspiring interviews with some of the top experts in health and wellness, bringing you the latest in nutrition, exercise, ancient healing, toxins and detox, your microbiome, mindset, hormones, brain, and much more. Stay tuned. We're going to teach you how to experience growth daily. Hey everybody, this is Dr. David Awardy coming at you with another great episode of the Dr. Dad's Podcast. And I'm here with my partner in crime, Dr. Nicholas Jensen. Nick, how are we doing, man? Doing really good. Uh, happy New Year, buddy. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, too. This is our first recording since we started the this new vibration, this new rhythm, 2022. I, I'm expecting better things or, or maybe more hopeful, more positive uh, changes for the year ahead. And it sure, I mean, it's... One of the things that we did over the this past uh, month or two is to we we simplified our practice, and so we're coming back into our clinic half the size, and I feel like I've got twice the energy. It's actually really amazing what happens when you let go of some stuff to simplify to make room for different kinds of growth. So I'm looking forward to the year ahead. How about you, David? I am, brother. What's your what did you come up with for your year? Your 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 word for the year. The word. Is it? It's intention. Intention. And awesome. it, it's with a little a sprinkle of gratitude. I found that uh, since this cycle began or whatever this this new January, I was waking up in the morning just feeling the gratitude for my wife that was lying beside me, uh, just all sorts of different things. And so, it's it's intention and mixed with uh, a lot more gratitude. Awesome. How about you? Mine is being. Being nice. So last year was awareness, but this year it's being and just trying to maintain that that state of being versus doing sometimes and and really focusing on on being in creation and just being in the moment, man. Love it. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. And we've got a, a, such a sacred and special individual with us today. And we're gonna talk a lot about bowling. Yes. Yes. And lots of mini fun games. <laughs> So we got a great guest on with us today for our listeners. We have Neil Donald Walsh. Um, you've probably heard of many books that this, this brilliant man has written. He's written 29 of them on spirituality and its practical application in everyday life. Um, he's had titles in the With of God series include The Conversations with God. He has three books on that. Friendship with God, Communion with God, The New Revelations. There's a bunch. Uh, he's been on the New York. Seven of his books have reached the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and he's got a new book that he had just come out pretty recently called the God solution. And I can't, you know, I've been looking forward to talking to this guy for, since we booked him actually. And I'm really looking forward to diving in with him. Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to share these moments with you. So Neil, I want to, yeah, go ahead. Just so you know, not that I'm bragging, but just for accuracy's sake, it's 39 books. 39 books. That's Thank you for the correction. So 39 books on spirituality. Amazing. Amazing. I I only mention that because people uh, sometimes call me on these kinds of little details. They say, Mm -hmm. hey, how many books are there out there? So there are nine dialogue books and 30 books that support uh, the nine dialogues. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I've made my way quite a bit through the three books of conversations with God, and I love your work. And so I kind of want to dive into things and just get the conversation going, Neil. Um, I've heard you speak in some uh, interviews that you've had with, with other individuals where you talk about something called an, an idea hero. I'd really like to dive into that just to start the podcast and then we can kind of move into some other things. So what's an idea hero? Well, um, the reason I even talk about it, um, David, is because uh, I think that what the world needs right now are more idea heroes. An idea hero is someone, it's kind of a little phrase I made up. I just kind of came up with it uh, as a way of describing a person who holds an idea, usually a fairly important idea, that he, that he or she knows ahead of time, the largest number of people will not agree with. They might even be really, really opposed to it. Uh, or at the very least, they simply won't understand it. So there are people who have the courage 
to stand for their conviction in the face of sometimes fairly vehement opposition. Galileo is a perfect example, and I use that when I share my idea about what an idea hero is. Galileo said in 1603 that the earth revolved around the sun, and he was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church, which taught just the opposite. The church taught, believe it or not, that as a matter of doctrine, by the way, the church taught that the sun revolved around the earth, that the earth was the center of the universe and humanity was God's greatest creation. So therefore we must be the center of the universe and the most important entities in the universe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when Galileo came out with his scientific evidence that it was the other way around, that the earth revolves around the sun, um, he was condemned and put under house arrest. He died under house arrest. Um, but he was an idea hero because he said, I'm sorry, this is what I know to be true. 363 years later, the Catholic Church said, oh, um, we take it back. I guess we were wrong. Turns out the sun revolves around the, uh, I mean, the earth revolves around the sun after all. And Galileo was right. And so we rescind our condemnation of him uh, as if Galileo at that point gave a damn. But um, so, but Galileo was an idea hero. And Ignatz Semmelweis was an idea hero. In 1844, he said there are such things as germs. Uh, and he was a Hungarian physician. Uh, and but they said no, you, you're making it. You know, you're crazy. It's 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 a crazy idea. He was advocating that uh, um, doctors should actually sterilize instruments and their hands between procedures. Believe it or not, they weren't doing that until he brought up the idea. And it was his idea that it would reduce the mortality rate in hospitals because physicians were coming right from the morgue into the birthing room, and the mortality rate was right through the roof. And nobody could understand why. So, but they drummed him out of the medical profession. He, likewise, he died in an institution thinking that I must be crazy, but he refused to give up his notion that, uh, that there were such things as germs and that we should use. So he's known as the father of sterilization. One, one third example, just to give you a, a, a broad base of this, Barbara McClintock is an American geneticist. In the uh, early 50s, she discovered what she called jumping genes, which she described as one of the reasons why genetic transfer of characteristics, so-called inherited characteristics, can't be dependent upon to be consistent because she said genes actually jump from chromosome to chromosome. They told her colleagues also told her that, that she was wrong and that they call that junk DNA and they drummed her out of the geneticist profession until 1983 when she won the Nobel Prize in physiology for her discovery. Then the doctors all got to say, oh, I guess Dr. Dave and Dr. Nick were wrong. I guess, I guess that Barbara McClintock was right. She, and so she was also an idea hero. So with those three examples, we understand then that idea heroes are people who say, you know what? Maybe there's something we don't fully understand here. The understanding of which would change everything. And I bring up the topic of idea heroes, uh, David, in front of my audiences, because I'm saying that what we need now on this planet are idea heroes, people who have heroic ideas about God, about life, about who we are, and about the whole gestalt, the whole, the whole experience of uh, life in the universe. We need some new dramatic, and I mean revolutionary dramatic ideas about all of that. Because the ideas that we've been living with uh, for the past several thousand years have not served humanity. Clearly, they're not working. Chiefly, the idea of a God who is condemning punishing and judgmental. So, um, and that happens to be, by the way, the, the major teaching of most of the world's 4,300 religions. Most people don't know that there are 4,300 religions on the face of the earth right now. 
But I didn't make that number up. You can Google it and you'll find out that that's an accurate number. But all of those religions teach of a deity who is in fact judgmental, condemning, and punishing. And uh, then that, that wouldn't be so bad if that was just somebody's thought about it, somebody's doctrine. Okay, fair enough. Believe what you want to believe. But the problem is, David, that humanity has modeled its behaviors on its understanding of how its deity behaves. So if, if God is judgmental, condemning, and punishing, then it should be perfectly okay for us to be judgmental, condemning, and punishing as well. So what I have been proposing of late, uh, since I had my conversation with God experience 25 years ago or so, is that we need a new definition of God. We need to change the model on which we are basing our behaviors and out of a willingness to have an, uh, a heroic idea that we, you know what, we may have been wrong about what we think God is, what we imagine God wants, and how we tell ourselves that God works in our lives. A whole series of brand new ideas about God would create a new human ethic, a new way for us to behave, a new way for us to understand who we are in relationship to each other, why we're even on the planet, and what is the point of this thing called life anyway. So that's what I'm suggesting in the latest writing that I've done, which is called The God Solution. And you know, David, I call it The God Solution because I propose in the beginning of the book a question. If there really is a God, I mean, I mean really, who knows? But if there really is a God, if we could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there really was a God, would it make any difference in our lives? I mean, any material difference if it could be proven? Or conversely, second question, if it could be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that God does not exist, would that make any difference in our lives in any practical, functional way? I call this the God dilemma. The real God dilemma is this. If there really is a God, why is the world a mess? Why is the world, and why has it always been for thousands of years, such a mess? World wars, conflicts. You know, there's been armed conflict on this planet for 92% of recorded history. How, how is that possible? If there really is a God, if there really is a God, how would it be okay with God for the species that God created to produce circumstances like eight, I'm sorry, 2.8 billion people, 2.8 billion people on this planet today have never had a drop of clean water in their lifetimes. 2.6 billion people still on this planet to this day, do not have electricity. They're still living by candlelight in 2022. That's almost a quarter of the human race does not have electricity. 2.7 billion people do not have indoor plumbing. Now you might say, oh, Neil, you're making a big deal out of nothing. These are, so, these are inconveniences. It would be nice if, you know, if it were different, but these are simply inconveniences, really? Really? 1,600 people die every day on this planet from the outcome, from the fallout of those experiences. Health issues that are created by those experiences that I've just, just, just talked about. Preventable health issues, malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea. It turns out that actually 653 children die on this planet every hour of starvation, of starvation, every hour, 600 children are dying. What kind of a civilization allows 600 of its offspring to die every hour of insufficient food when we throw away more than enough food from the restaurants of Tokyo, Paris, and Los Angeles 
than it would take to feed an entire village in certain parts of the world for over a week. What, what, what kind of a civilization acts that way? Oh, I see. A civilization of entities that have no idea what life is really about, who they really are, and if there is a God, what God really wants and how God really works in our lives. I could, you know, be wrong about all of that. I'm not wrong about the statistics. Those numbers are real. But I could be wrong about the possible solution. But you know what? It's an heroic idea. And we need more idea heroes who are willing to stand up and say, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's more here than meets the eye. Maybe Bill was right. I call him Bill because, you know, he's a pal of mine, but I mean William Shakespeare. Maybe William Shakespeare was right when he said, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to rise up against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? I think Bill had his finger on the whole situation. So you ask me a 30 second question. I give you a 12 minute answer and that's how it's going to go. That was awesome. I love, I love the answer. Uh, and there's like a million questions I could probably ask you based off that answer, Neil. Um, so let's just go, let's go in this direction. If it's okay with Nick. So we're talking about this big idea of whether there's a God or there's not a God. And in a lot of your stuff, you talk about collective consciousness and how it's not just one person, but it's this collective idea of us all getting on the same page to make change in our world, right? Can we talk a little bit about collective consciousness and how that plays into this bigger idea of, of uh, if there's a creator and, and how that works and how it moves through us? And Yes, in, in my understanding, David, the world is nothing but energy. Really, the whole universe is nothing but manifested energy, energy materializing, if you please, in particular forms based upon the vibration of the energy itself. And so if we understand that we live in a universe that's basically a conglomeration of energies, and if we understand that that would include us, that you and I and, and maybe even Nick, possibly even Nick, are composed of energy that we are receiving from the environment, and here's the key, sending into the environment. And so we're in a circular process of receiving and sending energy. Everything is receiving and sending energy from everything and everyone else, including, if you please, from that aspect of life we call God. We are in fact receiving and sending energies to that aspect of life that we call the prime source, or the essential essence, or in some people's idea, God. So since we're involved in this energetic transfer process, if we can get a sufficient number of people to agree on the kind of energy that they wish to send into the environment, we can actually impact the environment itself. That is, I don't mean necessarily the, the physical environment, I mean the entire environment of life itself throughout the universe. So the idea is, and of course we understand this, in sports we call it the home field advantage. It's very simple. There's a reason why teams win more of their games when they're playing in front of the home crowd than they do when they're playing the games in the visitor's stadium, when they're the visitors in someone else's stadium because they have the so-called home field advantage. It's energetic. It's simply energetic. There's nothing um, unusual or difficult to understand about this. So what those of us who are calling for a brand new idea of, of God in life and our, ourselves are suggesting is, what if we reached critical mass? 
in the number of human beings who held a particular thought, because of course, thought is energy. I mean, it can be measured. They have instruments that can measure your thought and tell you whether you're lying or telling the truth. In fact, it's called a polygraph. So, so thought is energy, uh, just one of a thousand countless forms of energy in the world, but thought is a very powerful form of energy. Now, what if we could get a critical number of people that would have the same thought about the same thing at the same time? Could that in fact impact the larger environment in such a way that it could shift our global reality? The answer of course is yes. And everyone who has studied this has come to that conclusion. This isn't some theory that I have, some idea that I've heard about somewhere. Virtually every scientific analysis that has been made of what I've just said has come to the same conclusion. Energy impacts energy. It is the uh, element of the universe that has impact upon itself. And so the idea here is that what if we all chose a new way of thinking and feeling about life itself, its purpose, who we are, and about that aspect that some of us call God? Could that alter humanity's expression and therefore its experience of itself? Well, we, we, we understand that even one or two individuals in history can put an idea into the space that can impact millions of people. It's happened around the world throughout human history, from Julius Caesar and before him and, and since him. And we could start, I, I won't do it, but we could start naming names of people who we know. And I mean, I'm not talking about thousands of people, I'm talking about individuals who have placed into the space of life an idea so powerful and so attractive and so magnetic and in some cases, sadly magnetic, in some cases, sadly attractive, that is appealing to the lower nature of people, but nevertheless, powerful ideas. And we could sit here and name people that we remember from history and people who are living today, who have the ability to place a single thought, a single idea into the environment and gather the agreement of millions of other people such that the collective reality begins to shift and to change. So the question before the house becomes, whose ideas shall we listen to? And with whose ideas shall we agree? And what shall we do to demonstrate our agreement? I call that the God solution. And that's why I wrote a book called The God Solution. Love it. And I appreciate that you feel that I may have an opportunity in this world of energy exchange as well. So thank you for including me. In, in yeah, that well, well. I wouldn't count on it for sure, but <laughs> there's, there's that possibility. There's a possibility it may not work. Yeah, I, I appreciate that too. Uh, I mean, we're, we're currently in a world with, with um, an idea that has taken the world by storm. And, uh, you know, for better, for worse, that's not the point. The point is that we're living in a time right now where a, an idea has um, ignited a, a consciousness shift. And we're living in it right now where all of us are aware of that. I mean, let, me tell, let me tell your viewers what I think that idea is. I don't know what you're referring to, but I have my idea. Ask me what my idea is. That, what's, that, what's your idea for the times we're in? It, no, here's, here's what I think that you're referring to. This is the idea that's taking the world by storm. Separation. We think we're separate from each other. We as a species have bought into the notion that everything is separate from everything else. That we are separate from each other. We're separate from our environment, from our world, from the physical aspects of the universe. And of course, we're separate if there is a God. We're certainly separate from God. I mean, God's over there and we're over here and never the twain shall meet. So we live in this environment of separation and, and in this reality where, where everything is separate from everything else. And the sadness of that is that it's produced an outcome called alienation. 
a level of alienation, Nick, on this planet more powerful, more present, more prevalent than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I'm an older guy. I've been around for almost 80 years, and I've never seen anything like what I'm seeing in the past five or seven years on this planet, where we are alienating from each other because they're different from us in some way. Their income is different from our income. Their politics are different than our politics. Their religion is different from our religion. Their sexual orientation is different from our sexual orientation. You know, their, their actual gender is different from our gender. You know, their nationality is different from our nationality. So I got the answer. I know what to do. Let's build walls. Let's build huge brick walls around our enclave, around those who are part of our group, and make sure that nobody else can possibly get in. Because if anybody else gets in, they're other than us. It's those other ones that are the problem. We're not the problem. It's those other ones that are the problem. And so the problem in the world today is that we have bought into the notion of separation. And it's created incredible problems sociologically, politically, economically, and spiritually. Take away separation. Take separation off the table. Replace it with the idea of oneness, that we are all one. And the walls come tumbling down. And we suddenly embrace an idea of ourselves. I mean, as a species, we embrace an idea that says, you know what? What I do for you, I do for me. And what I fail to do for you, I fail to do for me. Because we are all one. I can't, I can't ignore your needs and your challenges and imagine that I'm going to succeed as an individual by behaving in that way. In the short term, perhaps, in the long term, and human history has proven this. You know, there are 85 people in the world who hold and control more wealth and resources than one half of the human race combined. And, and, and we have people saying, that's perfectly okay. What's wrong with that? Hey, you know, that's, that's, that's fine. To the victor go the spoils or, you know, whatever, or, you know, or every man for himself. You know, forget about all for one and one for all. I mean, what was he thinking when he wrote The Three Musketeers? What the hell was Dumas thinking? What a stupid idea. All for one and one for all? Was he so far behind or was he so far ahead? Of our time. No, 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 it's not all for one and one for all. Neil, don't be so naive. You're so naive. It's every man for himself. And I really mean every man for himself, by the way. Not just every person for himself, every man for himself. Women, forget it. If you don't have a certain appendage between your legs, you're not even allowed to go to school. You have to dress a certain way. You, you can't even show yourself in public except maybe a small little, little opening here where you can see where you're walking. But by the way, where you're walking will depend on whether your male companion, your husband or your father, allows you out of the house. You can't even leave the house without their permission and they have to go with you. They must accompany you. So it's really every man for himself. And I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating or making up stuff. I'm describing life on this planet right now in the year 2022. You know, you, know, you know how primitive we are on this planet? We actually kill people. I mean, the state, I don't mean individuals or even terrorist groups. I mean, state governments actually kill people deliberately as a means of teaching people that killing people deliberately is not okay. And we fail to see the contradiction. It's called capital punishment, which they love in Texas, by the way. They love it. <laughs> Ignoring completely the wisdom of Albert Einstein, who said, excuse me, you can't solve the problem using the same energy that created it. You're not going to bring an end to anger with anger. You're not going to bring an end to killing with killing. You're not going to bring an end to terrorism with terror. Hello, hello, hello. Earth to kneel, earth to kneel, wake up. But it's okay to use the death penalty, even though statistics, every place it's used, 
demonstrate that this is not lower the crime rate. Hello? Then we're going to use it anyway because it's about revenge. Getting them back. Make them pay for their sins. Yeah. So we will kill people deliberately to teach people that killing people deliberately is not okay. Am I living in a science fiction movie or what? Or is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand here? The understanding of which would change everything. Oh, Neil, there's nothing we don't understand. It's all in the book. Just read the book. It's in the good book. Just It's all in the book. Oh, of course, I forgot. I forgot. It is. It's, it's all in the Upanishads. I, I mean, the, the Bhagavad Gita. I mean the Book of Mormon. I, 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 I mean the Talmud. I mean whatever, whatever of one of the books of the 4,000 religions. Which book should I be reading? You better read the right one. Because if you read the wrong one, you're going to hell. And in fact, we might even send you there. We might even kill you. Because you belong to the wrong religion. There's an idea. Let's purge the land of everyone who doesn't belong to our religion. There's a thought. Is this a science fiction movie? What are we doing to ourselves? And why? So, Neil, you look in history, you know, I'm listening as you're talking, and you see this process kind of replaying itself in many different ways. I mean, you, you talk about many of these things in, the, in your books that you write, of how as a collective consciousness, we've had these ideas, they've had millions of people come behind them, they weren't the best of ideas, some of them have caused mass genocide and just horrible things to happen on this planet. And now we seem to keep repeating the same thing. So we're kind of back to the, the first thing we were talking about at the beginning about this need to change this idea of what God is and for us to, to, to move in a different direction. So let's kind of, let's shift a little bit of, in that direction of how do we get from where we're at right now as a collective and start moving in the right direction so that we can make these changes? By noticing that we are not okay with where we're at right now. The first step would be, excuse me, I hate to be accused of being woke. I understand that being one of the woke is really the cardinal sin right now in certain southern states of the United States and in certain conservative areas. The worst thing you can be called is woke, the greatest insult. But in fact, this, the answer to your question, David, is to do what we can to help people, in fact, awaken to, to the reality that, excuse me, what we've chosen about God, about ourselves, and about each other isn't working. It's simply not working. Unless, of course, you think it is. Unless you like life the way it is on the earth. Unless it doesn't bother you that 653 children die every hour, every hour of starvation. Unless the conditions that human race is facing don't bother you. I mean, hey, you know what? Everything's okay in my world. I'm doing fine. I got a nice house. I got a nice car in the driveway. In fact, I have two cars in the driveway. I have more than enough food to eat. I actually throw away more food every week that I don't, you know, leftovers than would be needed to feed an entire village. As I mentioned earlier, so, so, you know, Neil, relax. Everything's fine in my house. And I can't be concerned with your house. You know, it's not my fault you've chosen to be a doctor. Whatever. I mean... So we, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, really. So the answer to your question is, we need to begin to ask a separate question. Are you okay with the way things are? Is this okay with you? Or is there an awakening that could help us to change the collective reality? 
You know what? When the pandemic first hit, we had millions of people, not a couple of thousand, but millions of people actually denying that there even was a pandemic. It's, it's made up. It's, 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 it's a constructed you know, reality. It's, it's a conspiracy. It's made, now most of the people say, okay, okay, fair enough. Fair enough, there really is a pandemic. But it was created as this conspiracy in a laboratory in an evil nation by evil people who decided to control humanity. And, and look what, what a good job that they've done controlling humanity. And I mean, really? It's, so even in the face of a pandemic that has killed, brought an end to the life of millions of people, even with that being true, we can't even agree among ourselves on how to solve the problem. We can't even find a way to agree on how to share what some people considered a solution. I'm not going to get into a big discussion of vaccine or no vaccine. I'm not going to get into that. But if, if there are certain people who think that the vaccine might be helpful, we can't even figure out, David, a way to get it from one country to the other in a fair way, in an equitable way, so that everyone who thinks it could be a solution could have access to it. We are such a primitive species that we can't even do that. Oh, my gosh. We are preposterously self-inflicting in terms of the challenges and the predicaments in which we are finding ourselves. Our predicament has been preposterously self-inflicted. We were told 50 years ago, and I mentioned it in my book, by the way, if you've read The God Solution, we were told 50 years ago that a, a virus that would sweep across the globe it would be the biggest danger if we don't change certain ways that we are moving forward in our collective experience on the planet. 50 years later, here it is. I mean, we chase a guy down the street because we think that he may have committed a crime. And we ham him in with two cars, two, two trucks, and, and, you know, the driver in one of the trucks is stupid enough to actually film on his camera what's going on, which sent all three of them to jail for life. Because they, they, they kill the guy. They think he was committing a crime. Okay, all right, let's, let's take the law into our own hands. There's a good idea. That, that's what an evolved society would do. We would simply kill the guy. I mean, you can't even pick up the newspaper and read the headline. Newspaper, by the way, <clears throat> that's a document that used to be delivered to our front door every day. It was made out of paper and it had printing on it and it had news in it. Uh, and, and you can't even turn on the internet and, and read the news on any day of our life without holding your head and thinking, is this real? Are intelligent human beings? Is an evolved species actually producing these behaviors? So the long answer to your short question is, what it will take is for enough of us to behave in a way to raise the question such that enough of the others of us can no longer ignore the problem and find themselves asking the question, is this really the best we can do? Is this really the best we can do? And even more important, David, is this the world I want to leave my children and my grandchildren? Am I really so present moment oriented that I'm not even thinking of my grandchildren and the world they're going to live in if we keep on desecrating the planet the way we are? I wonder if we've thrown enough plastic into the ocean. Eh, there's an idea. Let's have a throw plastic into the ocean day. We can all go out in boats and just throw all of our plastic into the ocean. Doesn't matter. Or, or let's have a blow up more atomic bombs under the earth day. There's an idea. Let's see how many more atomic weapons we can test 
underground before we create more earthquakes and seismic shifts on the planet. Yeah, there's a good idea. Yeah. Let's see, are there any more insane behaviors that we could engage in? Huh. Yeah, there must be something we can do to make life even crazier than it is right now on the planet. I got an idea. Let's say that if we believed in God in a certain way, all the problems would go away. But you have to be the right religion. David, I don't know what religion you belong to or if you belong to any religion at all, but you need to know that if you're not a member of the right religion, it doesn't matter how kind you are. And I understand you are reputed to be a kind person, a generous person, an intelligent human being, a compassionate person, a loving person, a forgiving person. People say these things about you. These things are true about you, but you know what? God doesn't care. You don't belong to the right religion. You're going to hell. How you've been on the planet, the life you've lead, you've, you've led is irrelevant. You simply chose the wrong religion. What can I tell you? And I will treat you the same way, by the way. I will love you in the same way. How about we play a game on, on the planet called I Love You If? Nick spoke at the beginning of this program about his wife lying next to him. I thought it was a little bit risque for him to bring up people lying next to you in bed, but I thought, well, it's his program. He can, he can talk about that if he wants to. I wonder if his wife understands that he's talking about her that way, but that's another whole topic. But, but what, if, what, if, what if Nick said to his wife, you know what, I love you, if. I love you if. And she said, I'm sorry, you, you love me if? What does that mean? What kind of a way is that to love me? And Nick said, oh, it's the way God loves us. It's a godly kind of love. God loves us if, and I love you if. If you give me, you know, what I need you to give me. You need to trade for me. I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll be fair about it. I will trade you what I have to offer you. And you trade me what you have to offer me. We can have a trade deal like, like countries do. Nations have trade deals. We can have a trade deal. And February 14th is coming up pretty soon in about six or eight weeks. And I'll send you the perfect Valentine's Day card. My dearest, my darling, my beloved, I trade you very much. And I will never stop trading you. I will trade you until the end of time. But if you stop trading me, the deal is off. We call that love. We call it love. If I don't get from you what I presumed or what you promised to give me, the deal is off. And what I'm suggesting David, is that we find a new way to define love by, defining, by finding a new way to define God. Because God is love. Most everyone agrees that God is love. But I think we have to sophisticate that definition. I think we have to modify it just a bit. And so what I'm proposing in the God solution is that we decide that God is not simply love. As humans understand love, but Pure love. What if we thought that God was pure love? Simply an energy that can be felt as what we would call pure love. Now, when I talk this way in front of audiences, somebody inevitably gets up in the back of the room, a member of the audience, and says, well, what's the difference? Everyone agrees that God is love. Nobody disagrees with that. What's the difference? I said, well, well the difference is that pure love needs, expects, requires, and of course demands nothing in return. We can't love each other that way. We haven't learned how to love each other that way. 
much less can we even imagine a God who loves that way. Dare we suggest that God is such a magnificent creature, such an incredible entity, that God doesn't require, demand, expect, and need anything from us in return for God's love? Careful what a theologically revolutionary idea that would be. It would violate the basic doctrine of virtually every religion on the face of the earth. But if we did violate those doctrines, we would create a new global ethic that we could apply, in fact, to our political, economic, social, and spiritual interactions with each other as a species. It could change everything. Overnight. I could, of course, be wrong about all of this. But I don't think so. So you beat me to my next question, Neil, which was I was going to ask you to tell me how would I would explain God to a child. But I think you kind of answered it in that, in that last statement about pure love and how, how we can create this new idea of what God is and what that, what that means. Would you add anything to that? If I had to try to explain to my eight-year-old, if he asked me, Dad, what is God? How would you explain to a child? Um, I would say that God is an energy called love. I would say that God is joy, happiness, and love. That God is not a person. I would say God is not a person the way, you know, like Santa Claus. Of course, it would depend on the age of the child. We're not talking about a three-year-old. We're talking about a nine or eight or nine or ten-year-old. But I would say God is not an entity, a person like Santa Claus, making a list and checking it twice and going to find out who's naughty and nice. Even Santa Claus has a list that says who's naughty and nice, which is why Nick has not made the list. <laughs> <coughs> but in fact, there is no such list. And I will, I will, I will tell you a story that I, that, I, that I would tell a child. When I was nine, my mother had a vase the family heirloom. It was a vase that had gone from to her, from her mother, who got it from her mother, who got it from her, one of those things from the old country that had been in the family for hundreds of years. And it had come down to my mother's house and she had it on the mantelpiece of the fireplace. And we all received direct orders, don't touch the vase. Don't, don't touch the vase. We all knew it was a family heirloom. Mom carefully explained that this was given to her by her mother who got it from her mother and her mother and so on and so forth for many, many hundreds of years. No exaggeration. This is really a, a true story of a, of a family heirloom. Well, of course, at nine, I couldn't, I couldn't stand that I wasn't allowed to touch it. So I got up on a little uh, stool when my mother wasn't looking. She was in the other room. And I, I just stared at it. I got up to its the same height as the vase. And I, I wanted to look at what's so special about it. It's just a vase. So I looked at it, looked at it, looked at it, and I thought, I wanted to just touch it and take a look at it closer. I knew I shouldn't, but I did. Of course, we know the end of the story. I dropped it, of course. And my mother heard the crash from the kitchen. And she came into the room and she saw me, I had gotten down off the stool and I was looking, she saw my heart had broken into a thousand pieces, more pieces than the vase, because I knew what I had done. I knew what I had just broken. It had been in the family for hundreds of years and I knew what, what my mother was going to feel and what she was going to say. And I, I had let her down in the biggest way. And she came into the room and she looked at the vase 
She looked at my face, looked down on the floor, saw the shards of glass, looked back at my face, saw the tears falling down my cheeks, tears of sorrow and self-regret and self-guilt. And she got down to my level. She got down to my level and she held my face in her hands. She said, sweetheart, that is a vase and you are my son who I love more than any other single object in the world. Go outside and play. And gave me on the side of my cheek the sweetest kiss I ever received. I didn't have to be 90 or 60 or 40 to understand how I felt when I received that kiss. A nine-year-old understands perfectly well what it is to be loved Wow, that was so beautiful. I, you had me tearing up just hearing that story. Just, I mean, that's that's love right there. I mean, maybe it's not something that needs to be shared in words, but it's that experience that you that you had as a kid that that really solidifies, you know, what that feels like. Which is, I put that story in the book, The God Solution, deliberately because I wanted people to understand viscerally. Yeah. not just intellectually, exactly what I'm talking about. And then I ended the story, Nick, with the following sentence. I'd like to believe that God is at least as nice as my mother. Love it. Because there's broken glass all over my life. My mother's falls wasn't the first thing that I broke. I mean, my life is about broken glass all over the place. Failed marriages, failure in some ways as a father. I mean, if, certainly huge mistakes all over the place to say nothing about belonging to the wrong religion or, or having the chutzpah to write a book called Conversations with God. I mean, I'm either going straight to hell or it's going to turn out that my notion of God is right and that she's at least as nice as my mother. Neil, thank you so much, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm almost speechless right now. Uh, I think you've given our listeners a really good idea of what you're all about and what your writings and your teachings are about and this connection that you have with creating this new idea of what God is so we can actually make this big shift to the collective consciousness because as we've spoken about today what is going on right now and we definitely do need to create something new moving forward and it's going to take all of us to do it um, you know and and we need more individuals like you leading the way and helping us, like you're saying, with these idea heroes. And hopefully one of these ideas catches fire and, and everybody just starts collectively getting on board because that's what it's going to take. Let me share with you in these last 30 seconds the massive idea, the most revolutionary idea of all, that we, each of us, is an individuation of divinity that every one of us are connected with God. That, that is, we are one with the divine and we are individual expressions of that which divinity is. And if we understood that and embraced it and accepted it and stepped into the demonstration of it, the world would literally change overnight. But when people say things like that, they tend to be minimized if not crucified. So you gotta be very careful if you walk around saying, I and the Father are one. You, you wanna be real careful who you say that to. But you can 
begin to step into the living of it. So what I would leave the audience with here if we're going to say goodbye is, how would you behave tomorrow if you thought that it was your opportunity to demonstrate your highest thought about yourself and your highest imagining about God? Supposing your life was just an opportunity to demonstrate those ideas in everything you think and say and do. And so I invite people to say something privately in their mind, David, when they meet a person for the first time that day. I don't mean that they've never met them before. It might be a total stranger, but it could be somebody like, you know, Nick talks about somebody who's on the pillow next to them. It, it could be either one. But here's what I encourage Nick and David and all the people of the world to say, don't say it out loud because you'll be in trouble if you say it out loud. But I invite you to say it in your mind. In fact, I dare you to say it in your mind the first time you see any other person on any given day to say this. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Your life will be made better today from my having passed through it. I promise you. Very profound promise. I think we all need to do that every day. I think if we all could step into that space every day and have and lift other people around us, like you're saying, this would be a very different world. We believe that doctors do that. You know, we have this society in which we believe that people like David and Nick actually do that. When we go to see our doctor, we hold a thought in our mind. My life is going to be made better today for his having passed through it. And I can't believe that the two of you don't feel a sense of that, an awareness of that, an understanding of that. When people come to see you and when they leave your office and they say, thanks, doctor. So the fact that you are healers puts you in a position to demonstrate to others the great truth of life. We are all healers. Unless we're not. You decide. Beautiful. Beautiful. Nick? Yeah, the, the, the heart and the, the awareness and the, the humor and all of it is is just you know it's this beautiful dance of life that that you're sharing and and the opportunity. It's funny because as you say that as a as a doctor, I do deeply feel that that people come to see us for obviously for their own unique specific reasons, and I always feel that and it's my duty to to um, instill that they're they're better off after having come through. But I, I'm not always intentional with it, and I think that that's an important you know, experience to just have in my own, you know, uh, internal world and to share with, with each person and be, and be really clear with that. So yes. I, I appreciate not that. Not every patient, but in fact, every person, not to, not to overwork the, the point, but in fact, with the person next to you, mm. to be able to say in your mind to the person next to you, your day. For my having passed through it, mm. I promise you. Love it. Yeah, and not to open up more stories, but I think that you know what you just shared in that one line encompasses everything that that you're calling all of us to appreciate more. Because if we truly own that, we would truly appreciate the this experience of God as pure love. And that, that we are all connected in this experience. And we would expand it because to appreciate is to expand, right. even as property appreciates in value. Mm. So appreciate something means it expands in value. 
so to appreciate is not only to have gratitude, but automatically to appreciate its value, even as property appreciates in value. Wow. Human appreciation is probably one of the most valuable things that we can invest in. Neil, thank you so much. Uh, I'm really having to just let this all sink in, man. I, I feel like I need to go back and re-listen to this whole hour. But uh, thank you for your wisdom, your knowledge, and just the words that you brought forth today with us and the lessons that were learned. Um, and thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy, and but I can tell that this is something that is not something that you're doing, but being with every day. And thank you for it. So. Um, Nick, uh, just so much gratitude. I'm going to appreciate this gratitude through my day as I bless each person as they come into my life and, and vice versa. So thank you. Thank you both for who you are and for what you do and for the gift that you bring to the world each of the days that you practice what you do. So thank you both for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Neil. Yeah honor thanks for listening if you enjoyed today's podcast please be sure to subscribe to the dr dads and share with your family and friends you can also follow and interact with dr nick and dr david on facebook and instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and the latest in health and wellness be well